welcome to Socrates in the City and happy Flag Day. I hope I have communicated to you how excited I am that it's Flag Day. Does any, did anybody uh, read what I wrote in today's paper? And by, yeah, I wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, today about Flag Day, and I'll be talking about that uh, a little bit uh, later on, but I'm just really, really excited about that. Uh, I want to talk about why that day is important to me, but it is important to me, and it kind of ties into the theme of the book. Uh, if you don't know what Socrates in the City is, and a lot of people watching on C-SPAN and Facebook have no idea what it is, I want to say, first of all, uh, thank you for wrapping up your early bird dinner and hustling to the TV. Uh, C-SPAN people, I appreciate that. And um, it's tough to pull yourself away. Golden Corral has several soups, and I know that it's very, very tough to pull yourself away, but I appreciate it. Uh, I've been on C-SPAN before. It's okay. They get my humor. It's okay. It's okay. We, uh, I think about six years ago, we decided that I would be the guest at Socrates in the City. Every six years, I'm, I'm allowed to do this. I come out with about a book a year, so I wouldn't do this every year. But uh, when I wrote my Bonhoeffer book in April of 2010, uh, I was the speaker, and I introduced myself, and it was very meta. You know what I'm saying? It was very kind of messes with your head. And uh, it messed with my head, and I was the, the speaker and the, the host. So uh, I decided not to do that this time, just because it's fatiguing. Let me put it that way. It's very fatiguing. But, um, but six years later, I've come up with another book that I actually thought, this meets the Socrates in the City requirements. It's sort of on the big questions, the sort of stuff that uh, we should all be thinking about, probably. We're not going to pretend we have all the answers, but it's something we should be thinking about. So we thought it would be appropriate to do this. Now... Uh, my publisher, Viking, has many representatives here. Don't raise your hands. But uh, they picked this date, June 14th, as the release date. And I thought, did they know that this is Flag Day? Because I write about Flag Day in the book, and this day is very, very important to me. And it turns out they didn't. They just happened to pick June 14th as the day this book should, should come out. Now, I wouldn't exactly call that a miracle, but it's pretty good coincidence, I think. And so I'm really just thrilled. Uh, as I said, Flag Day is very important to me. And it, it sort of is at the center of what happens in the book. So I'll talk about that uh, in a moment. Let me turn to the subject at hand. The book uh, that I have just written is called, <laughs> is called If You Can Keep It. There's so much that I want to say uh, on the subject of the book. Um, I, I hardly know where to start. So let, let me start with the title. Here is where I get this from. In 1787, Benjamin Franklin was exiting the Constitutional Convention Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Uh, now, part of the background of everything I'm going to say is that I didn't know this stuff, right? I got what I would consider a decent education, public school in Danbury, Connecticut, Greek Orthodox parochial school here in Queens. Uh, went to a good university, but none of these places really seem to communicate to me a lot of what I'm going to share with you tonight, which again forms the backdrop of why I wrote this book and why I feel such a burning passion to communicate these things. But the story is that in 1787, to refresh our memories, things weren't going so well for the United States of America, right? We had, I would say, genuinely, miraculously come into existence. When you, when you know the details, and I put them in my book, it is a staggering thing. We ought not to have succeeded. It doesn't make much rational sense that Washington was able to succeed. The Battle of Long Island, I didn't put that chapter uh, in my book. You can blame my publisher, Brian Tart. Where is he? Brian, where are you? But the point is that there's so many miracles that happened that when you put them all together, you say, this is remarkable. You don't have to accept it as God's hand or anything, but it is nonetheless remarkable when you look at the things that came together uh, to create this nation. At least for me, it was remarkable. I, I would read these things and say, this is staggering. It really does seem like God had his hand on the creation of this nation. It just doesn't make much rational sense. But again, you don't have to buy into that. You have to nonetheless understand that it is remarkable that we're here. So 1776, we come into existence. Rather miraculously, we win the war. Um, but in 1783, when the hostilities cease, what happens? We have the Articles of Confederation. We have a very weak federal government. Now, the whole point of the United States of America was to have a weak federal government. You know that, right? Oh, I'm getting applause. 
The Tea Party is here. Awesome. That's the point of limited government. However, if it is too limited, then you have no government, right? We get this. So you're looking for this incredibly fragile balance. And all of the leaders, the founders, the framers understood it wasn't quite working. So by 1787, they said, we've got to go back to the drawing board and, and figure this out. So they go to Independence Hall in Philadelphia. They spent about 100 days. The creation of the Constitution itself seems miraculous. And again, I say seems. There's nothing, there's no proof here that it was miraculous. But the point is that you have to go to the founders themselves and, and, and read what they wrote. And they all say that trying to find a compromise between the slave states and the free states, between Maine and Georgia, on and on and on, was essentially impossible. It was not working. And they were despairing that this could ever work. Now imagine the people who weren't inside the Constitutional Convention were probably thinking, okay, um, what are they gonna do in there? Are they gonna give us some kind of a limited monarchy? They're gonna understand that we need, I mean, because imagine in the history of the world there'd been nothing but monarchies. There'd never been uh, a republic like we have, nothing like it, and we forget. We kind of think, oh, it's normal. You know, what's the big deal? The big deal was it had never existed in the history of the world, okay? And so you have these people in this room doing something, and the people outside that room are probably wondering, what's going to happen? Are they gonna create some limited monarchy? What's it going to be? Um, well, Benjamin Franklin, the most, one of the most secular of all of the founders, exhorted the people in the room to pray. Now, do you realize how bizarre that is? Benjamin Franklin was the one to do that, but he exhorted them to pray, and he said that uh, God came to our aid in the formation of this country why would we doubt that he would help us now? Because they were at an utter impasse. In any case, things worked out. They created the Constitution. Many of those who were there actually used the word miraculous. They said it really was simply astounding that this thing worked out. And at the end of this, Benjamin Franklin walks out of the building, which is there. You can visit. Many of you probably visited it. He walks out of the building, and um, a woman, a Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia confronts him. Now, he'd been in Philadelphia for 60 years since he was 17, so long, 67 years he'd been living in Philadelphia. He probably knew everybody. So I can imagine this dowager who had known him since he was 18 years old comes up to him and says, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us, a monarchy or a republic? And Franklin says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. That's where this comes from, if you can keep it, right? Okay, so... The thing is, it's one of those things that maybe you heard it uh, in history class or maybe you didn't, but the point is, it really is one of these odd quirks of history. The only reason we know about this exchange between Mrs. Powell, who's lost to history, and uh, Franklin is because James McHenry, the 34-year-old delegate to the Constitution, happened to overhear this and went home and wrote all this in his diary. That's the only reason we know of the existence of this, okay? So it, it wasn't like a speech given by Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin shot this off the cuff and it's gone, except it's written down and now we know it. But think of the import of those words, if you can keep it. In other words, he understood and all of the founders understood that what they had created was utterly unprecedented. Now as a proud Greek, I know that the Greeks invented democracy, okay? But we had, we, yes we did, and, uh, and a lot of stuff, okay? So, but the point is that the Greek city-states were very small and democracy just flourished for a tiny, tiny period. Here we have 13 colonies, a couple of million people. I mean, the idea of bringing this idea of self-government to a nation, it, it simply had never been done. And the founders and the framers, as they were in that room, the Constitutional Convention, they really understood that what they were trying to do has never been done, and probably rationally shouldn't be possible. Because if something can't be done for millennia of history, why would they think that it could be possible now? Now again, every one of us, and it's the reason I wrote the book, we pretty much take this for granted. We just go, oh, what's the big deal? Of course it works. N no, they really thought that if this is to work, first of all, a constitution has to be an extraordinary document, which it is, um, but it requires the people to keep it, right? They said, if you don't keep it, it goes away, it evaporates. The natural state of affairs is not 
civil Republican democracy. That's not, this is not normal. What's normal is like people cutting each other. And, uh, and they got that at a lot of the other clubs in town. That's why we, we always pick this club. Uh, so, so basically, Franklin was not saying this very lightly. He was basically saying that if you can keep it, in other words, now it's up to you. We've created the Constitution, but now it is absolutely up to the people. We've created something that is an outlier, a bizarre anomaly, anomaly in history where it's going to be up to the people to do it, to continue it, and if they don't, it goes away. And so, as we know, the people did it. It worked, and it continued and continued and continued. Um, and I think we sort of forgot about the idea of keeping it. And I submit to you, again, it's why I wrote the book, that for the last 40 years or so, we have forgotten what it takes to keep it, and we've forgotten how important it is for us to keep it. And so I really think we've come to a place where uh, we're, we're in trouble. We aren't keeping it, basically. We're sort of on fumes. It's like a flower, cut flower. You say, oh, it looks very nice, but it's dead. Like it's in two weeks, it won't look very nice because it's uh, divorced from its roots. I really, I really think that's where we are. And it's not the kind of thing you would notice, right? Because everything looks fine, everything is good. But I really think that to be a people, uh, you have to know who you are as a people. You have to know your stories. Uh, in the last 20 years or so, uh, sorry, in the last 40 years or so, since the 60s, a kind of negative narrative has taken hold. And I always say that, you know, if you focus on what we did to the Native Americans or to the African Americans, we are right to know about those things, to teach about those things, and to focus on those things, because those are bad things that we need to acknowledge and repent of. But if you get stuck and you keep saying that we're bad, we did this, George Washington was a slave owner. In other words, if you're in this kind of self-flagellating cycle and you don't ever celebrate who you are and the fact that you abolished slavery and the fact that you dealt with civil rights and the fact that you're, we're always struggling uh, to do this kind of stuff, if you cease to be patriotic in the best sense of patriotic, something goes wrong. There's a Greek proverb that I quote um, in the book that uh, if you don't boast about your house, it will fall down and crush you. In other words, there's something fundamental, intrinsic to being human, to be proud of your family, to be proud of your village, to be proud of your island, to be proud of your nation, your city. There's something fundamental about that. Now, we all have been schooled in how that can go wrong, right? We know when nationalism goes wrong, it becomes jingoistic, chest-thumping. We, we've seen where that can go wrong. Okay. Um, but we also uh, have to understand that not having a proper, healthy self-regard, pride in who we are can also go wrong. And I really think that's where we are now. In other words, I think we've tried 40 or so years of not really teaching kids you need to love your country. And I really think we're at a place where most Americans, and I say anybody my age uh, and younger, and I just turned uh, 32, so... <laughs> I didn't? Call me a liar. Um, anybody my age and younger really probably didn't get this in schools. Now, I didn't. Um, and, um, but it never hit me until I was in this room listening to a man speak from this podium. It was Oz Guinness. I dedicate the book to Oz because I ripped off a lot of his ideas. I don't want him to sue me. Uh, but Oz Guinness wrote a book called The Free People's Suicide. Uh, some of you are familiar with that book. Uh, and he gave, uh, we had him as a speaker at Socrates in the City, and he spoke about that from here. And much of what he said, and Oz is from England. So I thought to myself, sitting here, I went to good schools, and how come I've never heard what he's talking about? It was really basic stuff. At the heart of the whole thing was what he calls the golden triangle of freedom. And this is what really struck me. The golden triangle of freedom. And this is what he said it was. He said all the founders were aware of this, and he's right, they were. He said the golden triangle of freedom was simply this. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. And faith, in turn, requires freedom. You got that? No. So... Freedom requires virtue. I thought, I've never heard that. What does that mean? Now, I spoke at a classical school in Texas not long ago, and the kids were saying, yeah, we know, freedom requires virtue. Like, they know. They're getting that in that school. So in some schools, they're teaching this, but I've never heard this. You're certainly never going to see it on TV. Virtue is like a dirty word. We don't talk about virtue. What is that? So we talk about competence, but we don't talk about character and virtue. So I thought, what does this mean, freedom requires virtue? And then I thought to myself, it's really basic. Freedom, which is self-government, 
requires that the people govern themselves. Now think about that for a second. Self-government requires people to govern themselves. That's not a tautology. It means that you have to actually govern yourself, okay? It's not just about we govern ourselves, but every person has to govern himself. Uh, in other words, you don't need a lot of cops. You don't. Self-government means that the people will pretty much govern themselves most of the time. And if they're virtuous, we know that they'll do that. Um, I don't steal, not because I'm afraid of being caught or being thrown in the dungeons of Saddam. Uh, I don't steal because I believe it's wrong to steal, right? So if you have people who are, by and large, virtuous, self-government becomes possible. And the founders understood that. They understood that it won't be possible unless you have people who can handle it, who are going to govern themselves. Uh, so freedom requires virtue. The freedom we're talking about requires virtue of some kind, right? We don't want to push it too far, but it's a basic idea. And the founders all understood this, and they all wrote about it, and I quote them in the book. They all got this stuff. So freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. Now, not everyone who's a person of faith is virtuous, and not everyone who is virtuous is a person of faith. However, the founders knew, practically speaking, when they saw a community that was serious about its faith, they tended to be self-governing and virtuous. Uh, I'll talk about Whitfield in a minute, George Whitfield, but when they would see the effects of the preaching of George Whitfield in the colonies, those places, the crime would drop. It's an extraordinary thing. So where there is robust expression of faith, you have people, generally speaking, who are, generally speaking, virtuous, who are, generally speaking, able to govern themselves. So they understood that freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith, and faith in turn requires freedom. Now, what does that mean? Faith in turn requires freedom. In other words, any kind of real faith cannot be forced. If you force faith, it's not real faith, right? If you force somebody to believe something or go to a certain church or whatever, you know that unless they really do it voluntarily, it's just a game. Why, why are they going, right? So you have many countries uh, in Europe, around the world, they say that this is the official church, you have to go to that church. There are a lot of people that are going and they're thinking, I don't buy it, but I'm doing it because I don't want to go to jail. Or I'm not going to start my own church because I'll go to jail. I don't want to go to jail. So you have to have real freedom for faith to flourish. Otherwise, the faith is not any kind of faith, right? And we all know this in America. We get this. Um, you have to have a free market of ideas. So people say, well, I'm going to go to this church because I choose to go to this church, not because the government forces me to go to this church. Or I go to no church because I choose not to go to church. Uh, so we're not forcing anyone to go to church. We're not forcing one, anyone to go to any particular kind of church. It's utterly free. The founders all understood that freedom of religion has to be at the very heart of the United States of America. If the people don't choose themselves what they want to worship, whether they want to worship, how they want to worship, where they want to worship, it doesn't work. So they wanted a robust expression of faith, and they said this um, form of government won't work unless, by and large, there are a lot of people of faith. But the faith must be utterly free. So they enshrined religious liberty in the Constitution, and in fact, they had been uh, really practicing religious liberty for most of the 18th century. It's not universal, but basically, America got this kind of stuff. So I remember Oz Guinness uh, saying it from this very podium, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is crazy. He has just told me how my government works and has worked for 230 plus years, and I've never really thought about this. And so I was deeply embarrassed um, until I realized most other people hadn't heard about this. And then I felt really good about myself because <laughs> I'd heard about it first. Uh, so, but I really thought something is wrong. This is very strange. Why don't I know about this? Um, then one day, um, I guess, uh, when my daughter was about seven, she's right here, she's no longer seven, put the cigarette out of your mouth, stop it. And, uh, and I found, uh, I don't know if you know those Dover catalogs, but the Dover catalogs where you can get all kinds of books and stuff, and I found a model, a paper model of the Paul Revere house. And for some reason it appealed to me, it's kind of like the, that moment in... Uh, Lewis is surprised by joy where his brother makes the little tin of moss and twigs. Something about the tininess of it appealed to him, appealed to me. So I thought that would be a nice thing to do with, uh, with my daughter. So I get the thing, and we're building this little house. And then I realized, you know what? The, the poem, Paul Revere's Ride by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, I, I never really read that poem. 
Because when I went to Yale, for example, poems that rhymed were sneered at. Because <laughs> only stupid people would want poems to rhyme, right? Uh, most people would want really elliptical, obtuse poems that you know mean nothing and you never read them. So, uh, so I picked up the poem and I started reading it. And most of you know little snippets of it, right? Uh, you know, uh, listen my children and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. And I started reading it, and I realized that I hadn't really gotten past that much. As I read through it, I realized I haven't heard this, and I haven't heard this. And it was so beautiful and so moving that I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned by the beauty of the poem. And I thought to myself, why have people sneered at this poem? And this kind of gets into where, where we've been in a culture, where we've sneered at this kind of stuff, at patriotism, and it's all corny. You know, Norman Rockwell's an idiot, right? And... Um, so I, I said to my daughter, well, why don't we see if we can memorize this? Do you think we can pull this off? And we decided to memorize it. Uh, and my daughter, being seven or eight at the time, with a fresh brain, was able to memorize it slightly more quickly than her father. But we memorized it together. And as we were memorizing it, I thought to myself, I've never felt what I'm feeling right now. I'm reading this poem, and I'm getting these feelings of patriotism that are breaking my heart. Uh, there's a line in the poem uh, about, and I, there's a chapter in the book on this poem, but uh, it says, and, and there was one asleep in his bed who at the bridge would be first to fall. It's talking about Lexington, right? Uh, and so he's evoking the image of a man asleep in his bed who at the bridge would be first to fall. So a few hours from now, this man who's asleep is going to get up and he's going to go and he's going to be pierced by a British musket ball and die. And it, and it just pierced me to read this because I thought I'm a father and, you know, if I was seven, maybe this isn't going to do much. But when you're older, these things mean something to you. And I, I was so moved by this. I thought the sacrifice, I've never thought about this. You don't hear about this on TV, really, right? You don't hear about this. You certainly don't hear about this in the Ivy League. God forbid they would say anything patriotic. Uh, and it's a, it's a sad thing. But as you get older, you start realizing how sad it is that they've turned their backs on faith and on patriotism as though these are, you know, these are something from, a, from an older time. We don't, we don't do that anymore. We're too sophisticated. And as I was memorizing this poem with my daughter, it reminded me of doing the same thing with my father when I was young, because the Greeks are not afraid of patriotism. And every March 25th uh, at our church, we would have a, a, an event where we'd celebrate Greek Independence Day, which is March 25th, 1821. And the kids would be you know, forced to memorize poems. And since I was a straight-A student, they would give me the long poem. And I hated it. And my father would say, well, we'll get up early and we'll you know, sit on the couch in the living room and I'll help you. And so we would do that and we'd memorize a poem. The, the one I remember was Oyerodimos, which is about, it's this, this old patriot you know, who wants to die. He served his country and whatever. And my, as my father was reading the lines to me in Greek, he would get choked up. And I would get embarrassed. You know, when you're 12 or 13, you don't really, you don't understand this stuff. You feel inadequate when your parents get choked up or something. But I realize now that he was experiencing exactly what I was experiencing with my daughter with this poem, that you, you read something and it gets to you because when you're older, you understand sacrifice, death, what people have gone through for our freedoms. These are not things we take lightly. And a healthy culture celebrates that, right? So in Greek culture, they don't say, oh, who are we? We don't want to talk about Greek exceptionalism. We're just like everybody else. No, they know Greeks are better than everybody <laughs> on the planet. And uh, if you don't believe me, ask my cousin John. He's right here. He'll straighten you right out. And so, so I was raised in a home where we were proud of our Greek heritage. We weren't ashamed. We didn't say, oh, we, we don't get into that, you know. Um, but it's interesting because I was also raised in a home where we were proud of being Americans, right? Um, my cousin John here, so I'm thinking of my theotiki. I mean, my father and my uncle were very patriotic Americans. They came to this country uh, in the 50s, and they knew that this was a great country. So when somebody would say something against America, they'd come after them. Because they said, who, who the hell are you? 
Do you know, I mean, have you been to other countries? Do you understand what we have here? We better be grateful for what we have here. Is America perfect? Of course not. But if you don't appreciate what we have, you're a fool. It's something that we need to appreciate. Now, you've got to put everything in context, right? You don't want to be a jingoistic, nationalistic, chest-beating fool. But to not appreciate what we have is sick. It's wrong, especially when it's the United States of America. So reading that poem and a number of things made me think we're living in a really strange time because kids don't learn these poems. If there were 90-year-olds in this audience or 80-year-olds, I'll bet you that many of them memorized Paul Revere's ride. They memorized the village blacksmith. They memorized Paul Revere's ride. It was the thing that was done because a people, in order to be a people, needs to know the stories and the poems and the songs that make you a people. Otherwise, you break down into red state, blue state, rock'em, sock'em, monsters beating each other over the head. You have to have something in common. And what we had in common was that kind of history and all of those stories, everyone liberal, conservative, we all understood this kind of thing. We all understood that Paul Revere was a hero. Nathan Hale died for his country at age 21, this noble man. All of those stories were on the lips of every American. And when you came to America, you were forced to learn this stuff. You were forced to, to learn a little bit about the history of the country. People didn't say, oh, you know, we don't want to harsh, you're mellow, and start telling you about American culture, you know, because you're from another country. We don't want to do that. And so my parents learned this stuff. People who came to this country, they were buying into something. Why? Because America is not defined by ethnicity. Every ethnicity exists in America. It's not defined by religion. Every religion exists in America. We're defined by an idea. We're the only country in the history of the world that was created and defined by an idea. And therefore, in order to keep the republic, as Franklin enjoined us to do, we must know those ideas, we must understand those ideas, we must buy into those ideas, and we must live them out. Otherwise, America ceases to exist because it is an idea. And so, as I said, uh, the more I looked around, the more I thought, we really don't know these ideas anymore. We've not been taught them. I have not been taught them. Let me just speak for myself. I was not taught these ideas. Uh, these ideas are not popular on TV. The idea of loving your country, it's just not found upon. And I thought, what has happened? Are, are we becoming uh, America in name only? Are we becoming America and not America? If America is an idea and we don't understand these ideas, it seems to me that that's what happens. American exceptionalism doesn't mean that we are inherently better, God forbid, okay? I'm a Christian, I know that everybody has an equal amount of original sin. We all stink, we don't deserve anything, and everything we have is a gift from God. So I don't think we're better than other people by dint of where we live or our ethnic background. I mean, look, we're, we're better than the French, but I'll leave it at that. The well, I'll leave it at that, I don't have time to get into that. But the point is that we are not better than anybody. And so anybody who thinks like America is better it's not that America is better. American exceptionalism refers to these ideas, which are basically a gift from God. And if you don't think they're a gift from God, they're certainly a gift of history from the founders to us. We did not come up with these ideas. We did not create everything that we have. It's a gift. And so when you're given an incredibly valuable gift, you have to know the value of it. I mean, imagine if somebody gives you an expensive laptop, you know, you use it as a Frisbee, right? It's not like you say, well, it's yours, do whatever you want with it. I mean, the person who gave it to you would be annoyed because it costs a lot of money. They could have given you a Frisbee, you know, they could have saved themselves some money. What we have is an exquisite treasure and we don't really appreciate it anymore. We don't know what it is, we don't know how it works. And it's not easy for us to keep the republic. It's not an easy thing. I mean, if you think democracy is easy, you know, try sprinkle a little bit of that on Iraq and Afghanistan, see how that turns out. It doesn't turn out so well because the people have not been prepared over decades and decades and decades to know how to use it. We were prepared in this country, why? Because we had, a generate, we had uh, centuries of British law, going back to the Magna Carta. We were biblically literate. We understood the ideas of virtue. In other words, we were prepared in a way that was extraordinary. And I have to say that the most extraordinary thing of all, uh, when I read about George Whitfield, I was utterly astounded because I realized that George Whitfield came to this country, there's a chapter on him in the book, and he was one of the oddest figures in history, a 21-year-old cross-eyed evangelist uh, who was 
if that's my wife, I'm not here. Uh, it, oh, she. Um, he was a phenomenon, okay? He makes Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul look like loser atheists, okay? He basically preached four times a day, nonstop, for decades. Now, this is true. I mean, he was a man on a mission unlike anything that's ever existed. He came to these shores in 1738 at the invitation of John and Charles Wesley, who were starting an orphanage in um, Georgia. And he was a preaching maniac. And what was he preaching? Was he preaching everybody come to the Congregationalist Church? No. Everybody come to the Baptist Church? No. Everybody come to the Catholic Church, Orthodox Church? No. He was preaching, you must be born again. In other words, he was not saying to people, you've got to worship this way or this way. He was saying the most basic gospel message about Jesus and about grace. Now, imagine going to a church where they're preaching morality, and they're telling you what a jerk you are, and you've got to try harder. And this man now comes, and he tells you, yes, you're a coal miner or a fishwife. You're a loser. You're, you're a failure. And God loves you and has a plan for your life and wants to pour out his love on you, and you are no different than the duchess or the duke or the king. God loves you equally. That really upset the duchess and the dukes and the kings because it was a message of egalitarianism from the Gospels, right? Now, I'm not going to go into this too much, but the point is that he's preaching a message of egalitarianism that people are buying into. They're going, that's true. We're all made in the image of God. And this, this hierarchy and this order, you know, that was still a holdover from England, that pr pretty much it began to create an American character in a way. Now, I'm overstating it because for time. But the point is that over the course of decades, he preached up and down the colonies so much that by the time it was over, 80% of the people in the 13 colonies had heard him in person. Now, you may remember there were no TVs in those days, or if you, if, you, if you were lucky enough to have a TV, you'd have to use a rabbit antenna and go up on the roof and all that stuff. So try to imagine how much this man preached. And when he preached, thousands would come to hear him. Thousands would come to hear him over and over and over. By the time he was done, he was basically the patron saint of America. Americans loved him. He was the only celebrity known from Maine to Georgia. Everybody knew of Whitfield. Everybody bought into his thinking. And he also basically said, if you are uh, infinitely valuable in God's eyes, no one can rule over you. So if there's a tyrant ruling over you, then you, you, you say to the tyrant, be gone. You, you don't have to submit to this kind of thing because you're, you're infinitely valuable. God loves you as much as he loves King George III. And if King George III is acting like a jerk, you can get rid of King George III. He didn't put it that way. But these were radical ideas. They come right out of the gospel. And so you have two things happen. First of all, you have all of these Americans kind of uniting around these ideas around the person of Whitfield. And you have many, many people becoming very serious about their faith. And so revival breaks out all over. And people became more virtuous. This is why Benjamin Franklin, who was not an Orthodox Christian, loved George Whitfield. They were friends because he said, wherever Whitfield goes, the people become virtuous. They govern themselves. So by the time this is over, he dies in 1770, suddenly the people are uniquely prepared to govern themselves. Uh, so when the founders go into this room and they create this government, they can hand it over to people who will keep it, who have a better chance of keeping it than anyone in the history of the world. So I say that without Whitfield, we would not exist. Now, you know, who knows? But the point is... That seems to be the case. So when I understood all this, I thought to myself, it's kind of scandalous we don't know this. It's kind of scandalous we don't know how uh, fragile our government is, our government, sorry, our way of life, our culture, uh, everything that we have, this republic. And if we don't get serious about keeping it, whatever that means, it is game over. And I really do think that it's as serious as what we faced in the revolution or in the Civil War, um, because it's, it's an existential crisis. If we are facing John Bull or Johnny Reb, you know, you can pull out a gun and you can fight that fight. You get that, that, that crisis. You see it in front of your eyes. But this is a crisis which has been like termites silently hollowing us out from the inside so that nobody really sees any threat. But if we become America in name only, if we become a hollow shell, uh, 
of America, in quotes, where America actually used to be, we will cease to have self-government. And, and it's already happening. In other words, you, you don't have to be, this book is not for Democrats or Republicans or liberals or, or conservatives. This is, this is a book for all Americans, that we, we all sense that some things aren't going well. Um, self-government is, and, and liberty are being challenged in a host of ways, whether it's uh, a clamoring for an extremely strong leader, uh, we know that that can go wrong uh, and that it comes with problems, or whether it's clamoring for a judiciary that legislates from the bench in a way that is fundamentally unconstitutional. The point is that what we have is very fragile, and you can screw it up almost any way you like because it's so fragile. And so I really do think that we're in, at an existential crisis. Now, when Longfellow wrote his poem, Paul Revere's Ride, he wrote the poem because it was 1860, and he knew that America is facing an existential crisis. And he wanted America to wake up and to see that they had to rise to the occasion and that they had to fight. And so he wrote this poem. And I realized that poems and stories and books, these are the things that can galvanize us, that can make us see where we are and what we need to do. To some very small extent, I hope my book uh, fulfills that um, kind of a role. I wrote it hoping that we could get a conversation started in our culture, a bipartisan conversation um, on this subject, because I really do believe that there's a huge existential threat, that we could shortly cease to exist. You won't notice it. Everything will look the same. Uh, you know, they're not going to like burn our mansions. It doesn't work that way, at least not yet. But the point is that I really think that it's something we have to take seriously. Um, uh, my publisher has graciously offered to give uh, a number of copies to members of Congress and another person uh, who I will not name, he's in the room, I'll give you his initials, Walter Kurt, he's right there, uh, to, to donate a number of books because I would love to, every member of Congress to get a letter from me with this book and say, what do you think about this? This is not written for Democrats or Republicans, this is written for every American secular, religious, it doesn't matter. These are fundamental ideas. We used to buy into them for 200 plus years. I don't think we, not only aren't we buying into them, we're pretty much ignorant of them. Uh, we have to dare to be patriotic in a healthy way, and we have to teach our children what we stand for. And so I hope that those books will be sent soon, and then I can get on my radio program and shame these congressmen into reading it and say, you know, I got a letter from so-and-so, he read it, have you read it? You know, and everybody, I would actually hope that everyone here, because people ask me, what can I do? Here's what you can do. You can contact your congressman in about a month's time and ask him if he got the book and he's read it. I think that if the people will be the people uh, and we will hold our leaders to account, uh, something can be done. I'm not one of these people who says it's game over, it's hopeless. God forbid, okay, I'm not permitted to lose hope. Our job is to do what we can do to be hopeful, and the rest is in God's hands. So I'll leave it at that. We have a few minutes for, for Q&A. How are we going to do that? I guess just from the podium. Anyway, well, that concludes the entertainment portion of the evening. Thank you very much. I want to ask the significance of Lady Liberty on your cover. But every event, we, beling, we begin this club with a Pledge of Allegiance. And being Flag Day, might we do that? Nah. <laughs> it's not going to happen. All right. Actually, that's so sweet, Peter. It's so sweet. I wanted to resent you, but I can't. You're so sweet. You're so disarming with your bow tie. Um, I don't mind doing that, but it'll shock some people watching on C-SPAN. It'll freak them out. Here, here. <clears throat> Just don't do the Nazi salute, because that really gets them. That really freaks them out. Just, okay? Yeah, let's, I'm, I, it's flag day. Where's the flag? Here's the flag. I'd love to do that. What a great idea. Okay, and Peter's our host here at the club. So even if I thought it was a bad idea, I would have to do it. So, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll start. I pledge, I pledge allegiance, allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with and with liberty, liberty and justice, justice for all. Wow. What a great idea. What a great idea. Put your brown shirts on and we're gonna start marching right after this is over. Um, but it's so funny because, because I went to an Ivy League school and I grew up in New York, really, any kind of patriotism even makes me uncomfortable. I think, I don't know, do we do that? 
Well, when I go around the country, I was someplace and they were singing God Bless America. I got tears in my eyes. I thought, why don't we do this? What is wrong with us? What are, we ash are we ashamed of our country? Clearly we are. Something's wrong. So your question was about the cover of my book, and I'm glad you asked. Thank was you. It, is that the question? That is, what does Lady Liberty mean as the symbol of the cover of your book? Um, we were just looking for a cheap graphic that didn't have any rights attached to it. So... Um, well, basically, uh, one thing I didn't say in my speech just now, which is at the heart of the book as well, is that the reason it's okay for us to talk about American exceptionalism, the reason it's okay for us to be extremely proud of our country is because from the beginning, this nation was always a nation for others. We do not exist for ourselves, And this is a fundamentally biblical idea. In the early pages of Genesis, Abraham is talking to God, and, and, and God says that you are blessed to be a blessing. In other words, if God ever chooses you or blesses you, it's so that you can bless others, not so that you can heap it unto yourself. So the Jews didn't say, hey, we're the chosen people. Isn't that great? Ha ha. No. If you're chosen, it's an awesome burden. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a thing that should make you tremble. And in some ways, Lincoln called this nation the almost chosen people. I quote him in the book. He, sa he said that there's something special about this country because we have been used uh, to touch others around the world. I mean, when there's an earthquake, we send, we don't ask questions. We don't say, you know, let's see the money first. Now, during a Trump administration, of course, we will say that. You've got you to understand. We're going to say, we want you to see the money, and then we'll send the medicine. But um, I, I don't think that's true. That was a joke, Mr. Trump. I apologize. Um, but the point is that we have always been generous. We've been generous not just with our treasure, but with our blood, okay? We have shed blood on foreign fields, why? Not only for our self-interest. Anybody who says that, we did it for oil, we did, now, those things enter into it. But if you don't understand that American lives have been given for freedom around the world, we have done the right thing around the world when it cost us, you know, shame on you if you don't know that, or you can't admit that, or you don't you're so cynical that you don't believe that. It's a simple fact that we have done that, and we have not simply acted in our self-interest. We have said that as we go, the world goes, and as the world goes, we go. And it, our boys died in Vietnam. I mean, you know, whether uh, we were right to be there or not, the point is the idea was that we're not just an island and we want to just exist here and have everything we have and everybody else can go to hell. That's never been the American way, folks. And that kind of attitude is fundamentally un-American. We have always said we're here for others. So the Statue of Liberty, to me, is this example. And actually, I, I, I write about this in the epilogue of the, of the book, that there was a moment uh, in, uh, I think it might have been, I'm pretty sure it was late, uh, 2001, so it must have been two months after the attacks. Um, we, were, we were on a speed ferry going to New Jersey, 34th Street uh, dock, you get on a speed ferry and we go to the Highlands in New Jersey to visit my in-laws, and as you're going on the speed ferry, I was always out on the upper deck, you know, it's an amazing thing, and I looked over and we went really close to the Statue of Liberty, and I got really choked up. Now, why did I get choked up? I got choked up because I'm thinking of 9-11 and also because I'm thinking about the fact that look at this country. In other words, we were attacked by evil men who wanted to do us harm, but we still managed to keep a posture of welcoming to the other world. I mean, we're the only country that we would be attacked by radical Muslims and one of the first things that we would worry about is that Muslims would be attacked by our people, so that our president comes out and says, you know, basically trying to say, don't do that, folks. Like, that's the normal, natural thing to do is to, like, you know, kick the butt of some people who you think are affiliated with those who did this. Don't do that. That's not the American way. In other words, we have always struggled with that, to, to, to how can we be welcoming to the foreigner, to the exile. That's a fundamentally biblical idea. Now, you can take that too far, and you can be really sloppy, like Angela Merkel, you know, saying, everybody come on in. That, that's pure guilt for what happened 80 years ago, right? That they're trying to redeem themselves and they're trying to say, well, just come on in. They're not thinking rationally. But the point is that we have to think rationally. We have to form our policies rationally. But we know, we all know that we are indeed a nation of immigrants. And we all know that we have to have a posture that says, welcome. And we've always been that way. And the Statue of Liberty, to me, symbolizes that. 
Uh, and of course, it's particularly touching for me because both my parents passed the statue in a ship uh, in the 50s. And I remember asking my mother when uh, I took her to Germany a year ago and I asked her about that and she said that it was 5 a.m. and they were woken up, you know, in the bowels of the ship and, and they ran up and there it was. And she says it was very emotional. Now, why is that emotional for people coming to this country? Because they know this is real. Like, this is not some cynical idea and they're like, oh yeah, America, America is really great. They know America really is great. They know that America is gonna give them a fair shake and an opportunity to work hard, uh, to send their kids to college, that I live the American dream. My parents understood that. They came from another place. And so to me, that's at the heart of who we are as a people. Uh, and so thanks for the question, because it's very important to understand that if you really exist to bless others, um, you know, that's a different kind of exceptionalism, right? We've sent missionaries around the world. There are all kinds of people around the world who've heard about freedom, have heard about God loves them, uh, who've gotten economic freedom, who have religious liberty introduced. Why? Because we said these ideas are not ours to keep. They're our, our ideas to share with the world. We, we want the whole world to become like America. We don't, we don't want to keep these things for ourselves. So um, that's why the Statue of Liberty is on the cover of the book. And the reason she's fading is because the question, if you can keep it, it's a pointed question. It was a pointed statement when Franklin made it in 1787 in Philadelphia, and it's a pointed uh, statement now. I don't think we're keeping it. I think that liberty is, is receding. You can still see the torch is still in focus, so I, think, I, I don't think it's lost, but I, I think we're losing it. And so this book, for me, is something that um, I wrote. This is my last, this is my best shot at trying to wake us up to what we have and to try to start a movement of some kind that we would take this seriously. Because I really think that you know, our election right now is a symptom of this. Everything that's going bad is a symptom of this, that we the people have to be the people. We have to love our country, understand our country. So great question, thank you. Oh, we've got another question. Uh, I love your intent to uh, be bipartisan getting the book uh, out. I should tell you I'm a Reagan Democrat. And our parties increasingly have radically different worldviews. And people, many people remember that God was shouted down in the 2012 election. There are people who will watch this on C-SPAN who will actually resent the fact that we recited the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, I know. So uh, what are your still thoughts? still watching. Look at them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, uh, what are your thoughts on bridging that increasing well, I divide. You're, you're, I mean, again, that's another one of the fundamental reasons I wrote the book. I said, there are people, here's the thing, there will always be ideologues on both sides. There are people uh, for whom being reasonable is not acceptable, right? And they are, they have a take no prisoners attitude. I didn't write this book for those people. I wrote this book for the people in the middle. Now when I say the people in the middle, I don't mean ideologically in the middle, they can be on the left or the right, but I'm saying these are the people who are open to reason, mm -hmm. and when they read about this, they may even say, well, I don't agree with every little thing, but basically, yes, I get this. Mm -hmm. Basically, mm -hmm. when I watch uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, my heart is touched. Yes. I, 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 I feel a love for my country. We really have to be rational about this, and we have to reach out to people who are willing to be rational. And people have read this book and praised it who are uh, secular liberals. And that proves to me that I, I, I wanted to write this book for everybody. This is for reasonable people. And so there are always going to be those people. And I think we have to understand that, you know, to argue with people on those fringes is to cast pearls before swine. We ought not to do it. We ought not to just let them think what they want. I would submit to you that there are plenty of Americans across the political spectrum, across the faith spectrum, who would say, yes, there's something here, that there's something beautiful about teaching our kids uh, the great stories of these heroes, that there isn't such a thing as a hero. Uh, we're not all bums. There have been people who have sacrificed their lives so that we can have what we have. And we need to uh, understand that not teaching that has harmed us. And so, you know, we're not gonna go back to, to 1920, but, but we have to really understand that we have failed, things have not mm. gone well, and I'm convinced that there are people, uh, as I say, most people, most people who read books, most people uh, in this country, they, they get this. This is, this is not 
is something that may please the people you know, who are on an editorial board of the nation or uh, you know, on the John Birch Society. I really don't care. I think that this is, again, this is for all Americans. And if you understand that we're in a tough spot, you understand this is something that it must be taken seriously. So thank you. That's thank good. you. We have a final question. I'll take more questions. Oh, these are, these more, are nice questions. More questions. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Uh, would you be more specific about what things you see as threats to uh, America and uh, why you say we're losing, losing the idea of America? Would I, I be mean, more specific? It, yeah, more specifics no. and, and about the... Uh, Not so, going to happen. So no, no more specifics about down. the other... Yes, all right, about, I can be more specific. Um, I can be more specific. I think I'm that, being virtuous or not following the Constitution or what? Well, I think there are a number of problems. Uh, the, here's the thing. We don't talk about virtue anymore. When I was reading particularly uh, some of the stuff from the colonial era, but also uh, up into Lincoln, the things that they said and the language they used, it was remarkable. They talked about honor and duty uh, we don't talk about that kind of stuff anymore. Now, that's a very odd development. What has happened that we are afraid to talk about honor, duty, patriotism, love of country? We have to ask ourselves, what has happened, and why do we think it's okay to let that stuff evaporate? What do we think, um, what will happen exactly? And, and I think that if you're not talking about virtue and you're not teaching virtue, in schools, uh, if you're so afraid to teach virtue or right or wrong, which we seem to be, you're raising amoral people. You're raising, I mean, if you think about it, when I say to somebody, racism is bad, right? We, we, you, you'll hear that. In other words, there's certain things you'll hear, but they don't really get into why. You know, in other words, we, we ought to be able to have discussions on what we believe, what is right, what is wrong. What just happened in Orlando is the classic case, right? Now, if I was a nihilist, I would say, who cares what happened in Orlando? Why do I care? W what difference does it make? Well, if you have a worldview that says people are created in the image of God, and they're infinitely valuable, and every American, uh, everyone in the world has value and ought to have dignity and so on and so forth, if you believe that, then you try to create a society where people respect people with other uh, points of view. Um, but we have to get into that conversation. And what really where we are right now is in, it's the politically correct sound bites. I mean, we don't actually have, it's one of the reasons I started Socrates of the City is to have some of these conversations to introduce uh, people who uh, you know, have written books about these things to think about them more deeply. We, we really don't do that uh, anymore. Where, where's the guy who asked me the question? I'm totally unnerved. Where'd he go? He's over here someplace. Uh, there you are. Uh, and, and so I think that, um, we have to be able to talk about these things, and we've been afraid to. We, we don't do that. And I think that you see examples in the culture. There's a breakdown of culture. Uh, I don't want to go into it, but I would say in terms of morality, absolutely, that there's, there are real problems. I mean, there's, there's cheating scandals. There's, there's all kinds of things where if, if you're amoral, you just say, hey, I need to do what I need to do to get ahead. Well, what about teaching kids that is wrong? Like, that's not okay. But we don't really, we don't get into that. I mean, uh, the, the, the whole idea of ethics, where do you get your right and your wrong? We have to have those conversations. We're afraid to have those conversations, I guess because we're afraid we're going to offend someone. And that's what, what concerns me, is that we have to have these conversations about um, what am I to believe? You know, if my religion teaches me that uh, sex outside of marriage is wrong or that uh, the homosexual lifestyle is not one that I want to follow, how do I exist in a culture like this, right? Well, in America, we say you can have all the differences you want. We're free to think what we want, but we have to respect each other. But there are other places in the world where they say if you disagree with somebody, you can kill them. You can treat them as subhuman, as inhuman. Uh, that is what radical Islam does, and it strikes me as odd, too, that we don't even have a language to talk about, like we get uncomfortable talking about radical Islam. Do you know how they treat gays? How ISIS treats gays? They throw them off tall buildings. They kill them. We need to have these conversations about what do we believe as Americans. And I just think that we have completely uh, avoided it, except in a very shallow, as I say, politically correct way. But I mean, that's just one thing. I also think that as people cease to govern themselves, the government steps in, basically. Right, so the government will grow if the people don't govern themselves. And so 
you have strange things happening like, I mean, even Roe v. Wade or the Obergefell decision, even if you agree with the decision, the way the court got there is bizarre. I mean, how do you find in the Constitution a right uh, to same-sex marriage or a right to abortion? In other words, the, the, even legal scholars say it, it, it feels like judicial activism. In other words, their job is to interpret the Constitution, and it's the job of the people in the states to vote. That's democracy. But in a way, uh, the, the natural course uh, is for a government to grow and grow and grow and to usurp those rights of the people. And so again, you see it from the, the judiciary, you see it with a stronger executive. We saw it under Bush, we see it under Obama. And it's the people who have to say, no, that's not the way we do things here. In this country, uh, we, we have a different way. The people are the government and we're not gonna allow people to um, rule over us. But I do think that that is beginning to happen. I don't think there's any doubt, and I, I don't really, I don't want to go on any longer, but I see all kinds of examples of it. I, I hope I write about some of them in the book, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll want to think about this more, because it's, I'm, I'm sure it's a great question, and I, I don't have more than that. Uh, Jojo Starbuck, the Olympic <laughs> skater. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for what you brought to us tonight, and I really do hope that you are starting something in our country with this book and all of us here. Kind of wish you were running for president. <laughs> what do you mean you kind of wish? I, I am. I can't get any press. I can't get any press. Bernie sucks the oxygen out of the room. I can't get any press. It's unbelievable. So here's my question. If freedom requires virtue and virtue requires God, what are we going to do? I mean, it is politically incorrect to talk about God and yeah. to have it in our schools. I was just talking about God on C-SPAN. You can just do it. Yeah, our children need to hear, well, have a moral I compass, think, and without some okay, kind well, of here, God. Here's the thing. I think when people say, like, well, it's politically incorrect, here's my, here's my question. So what? Right? Uh, actually, it was my dear friend Dick Cavett, who can be here tonight, who, who said, you know, if, if somebody says to you, you know, that, that will offend some people, the response will be, okay, so what? I think that one of the most wonderful things about American culture is our desire to please everyone. We worry about what people think, we don't want to offend people. There's something very healthy and beautiful about that. But it can go too far, and it can become a flaw. I think it has become a flaw for us. I mean, the idea that we're changing policy, you know, the transgender bathroom thing is such an odd, even if you, if you kind of think it's a good idea, it's still another one of these odd things that we are, are, are bending over backwards for you know, 0.01% of the people it becomes. A, I, I think it's gotten to a point where your average American says, something is out of order here. Uh, we really need to reassert ourselves and we need to talk about God and faith and virtue. Now, if people are gonna do it in the wrong way, they're gonna do it in the wrong way. I hope I'll do it in the right way, in a civil way, and we all have the ability to do it uh, in a civil way. And again, in the book, uh, I talk about this because I think that Americans have to rise up and begin doing this. I, I think that we're all responsible for having these conversations. It's, it's not me or, you know, there are going to be some leaders who can model it, but we all need to say, so what? You know, oh, you think I'm racist? Well, I got news for you. I'm not racist, so let's move on. You know, like, have you ever met a real racist? Do you even know what you're talking about? I mean, I think that we have, again, we've given so much power to the crazy voices. I mean, the people on university campuses who are, they're insane. They're in this tiny academic bubble. They're crazy. And the academic leaders, or I should say the, the college administrators, are so cowardly that they cannot stand up to these tiny maniacs who they've allowed to be there on the campus. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. But it, again, it shows you that if you don't have a robust sense of right and wrong, you're gonna back down when people scream. And I, and I really think that we've, we've got to, you know, most Americans are, 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 I think, at a point, you see it in this election, that they're saying, look, um, we've kind of had enough. Like, we have real problems, and let's, let's talk turkey, right? Let's, let's talk, and uh, we've got to stop being so easily offended. It's, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. So I think the first thing we can do is to say, look, tough luck. Like, I definitely don't mean to offend anybody, and if you want to talk more deeply, but if all you're going to be is so thin-skinned that we can't have a conversation, that's your choice, but I'm going to keep talking. 
So thank you. Thank uh, yes, you. sir. So Eric, you've touched on the theme of education and the role in promotion of virtue. And so uh, my wife and I, believing the, that the purpose of education is to promote wisdom and virtue, chose a classical Christian school. Right. But some would argue that you're abandoning the public schools, where the reality right. is the majority of our citizens will be educated. Well, I mean, so what, can you yeah. give us some just touch on maybe some specifics around how we can, what, regardless of where our children go to school, engage in the public school system? Well, it, de it depends. I mean, everybody's called to do different things. I think that I I'm not going to send my daughter to a school uh, so I can, you know, make a political statement while her brain is ruined. You know what I'm saying? Because I think at first we have to take care of our own. And if it means sending your kid to this school or that school, or that you, you, have to, you have to do that first. But you are right, to the extent that we can be voices in the public square and in the public schools, we, we should be, I agree. I mean, the public school situation has gotten out of hand and it's part of why we're here. It's part of why, I don't mean the Union League Club, I mean in this conversation and why I wrote this book, because you know the teachers unions and so on and so forth, they're not beholden to the free market, right? They, they, they're in there and they're saying tough luck. And you hear over and over and over again of teachers teaching things that they, they have no business getting into, right? Schools are supposed to be in loco parentis. In other words, it's the most basic idea of freedom is that I can raise my kids the way I want to raise my kids. And so I don't have time to teach my kids. So we're going to create a school and we're going to pay taxes so that somebody else can do what I want them to do. They're going to be paid and they're going to teach our kids. Now, the idea that those teachers then say, well, we're going to do what we want to do is fundamentally un-American and undemocratic. It, it just doesn't make sense. So the idea that we have schools teaching our kids, public schools teaching our kids things that are not what we would want them to be taught is just fundamentally crazy. And so that's why you have to have school choice. Uh, that's one thing I'm very happy to say that Trump has been talking about school choice because the idea that I have to send my kid to get indoctrinated by some crazy people who aren't afraid of losing their jobs, that is just fundamentally un-American. It is wrong. My mother left communist Germany when she was 17 years old by herself because of this issue. She was having communist garbage poured down her throat every day in school, and she said, I couldn't take it. I had to get out of there because it was indoctrination. And so, you know, she chose uh, not just to go to another school, but to leave East Germany. And I think that we have to understand that we have freedom. I mean, if somebody says to me, for example, if I had my kids in a public school and they said, oh yeah, tomorrow we're going to whatever, we're gonna, we're gonna teach third graders um, about how they can choose their own sexuality. Some parent in that school needs to contact all the other parents in that school and say, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna keep our kids home until the maniacs stop teaching things that we don't want them to teach our kids. You have to be willing to keep your kid home. You have to be willing. I mean, the Montgomery bus boycott, Rosa Parks started. For a year, African Americans didn't ride the buses because they said that is wrong and we're not gonna put up with it. And I really think that if some people think that they can um, bring the way they think to bear on, on our kids in that kind of way. We, if, see, here's the thing, Americans are nice. I said this before, because we're so nice, but we're so nice, we don't get angry. You have to say, no, you're not going to do that. My kid's not going to go to school. What are you gonna do, put me in jail? It's not Norway yet, right? I, uh, I appreciate the way that you contrasted kind of this robust belief in original sin with uh, the, the virtue that was present at, at the time and also in the founders. So, did I do that? Uh, you, you, you did. I, I, I hope you're recollecting me. I, I recall. I'll take the compliment. Thank you. Um, so uh, Benjamin Franklin, for instance, in, in Walter Isaacson's biography, is, is really kind of this genius hedonist. And um, you know, not all of the, the founders um, were you know, absolute saints. So what, what do you really see then? What's been the turn in virtue uh, in America that uh, has been kind of walked away from? Um, I don't think it's very easy to, to pinpoint it. I think that, roughly speaking, it started in the 60s, basically. Um, but it's a trickle down from the 20s and the 30s. I mean, elite schools like Yale already turned this corner in the 30s, basically. And in, in Europe turned this corner as a result of World War I, um, that they had seen the twin authorities of church and state basically let them down. And you know they, they had lost lives. And, 
and, and they really turned against those authorities in a way. And I think that the same kind of thing happened. It was like a loss of confidence uh, in, um, in, in authority to, to, to begin with, and a kind of a cynicism uh, or a nihilism or something. But I really don't think it reached us uh, un until the 60s and the 70s, where it really became uh, codified. It became part of you know, the way we, we function. And, uh, and so it's, it's not something you can put your finger on. But I think that you do see that the, the media typically tend to be uh, uncomfortably secular. Even though they're talking to a nation where most people have some kind of faith, you typically don't get that. In other words, you don't have that kind of a free market operating in the media. The media typically is people that they're, you know, secular uh, uh, LA people or secular New York people. They don't get that. Uh, and so they speak a different kind of language. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, the market always corrects itself, but it doesn't necessarily do it right away. You know, the truth will out eventually. But, you know, we had 70 years of Soviet communism before that wall fell down. So these things can last a very long time. And I would say for a long time, for about 50 or so years, we've had this, um, you know, Hollywood basically created anti-heroes in the 60s. And so all the films that you had before that, I mentioned Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, they sort of stopped making films like that. Suddenly they were seen as corny or, or, or something like that. And it's part of the culture. It's part of the drinking water. The Ivy League, where, where I went to school, you, you, it's part of the way people uh, begin to see things, and then that's the club you belong to. That's how people think. And I really think that the, the gatekeepers, the people in, in media, the, uh, you know, people in teachers' unions, people in politics, generally speaking, a lot of them are those kinds of ideologues. Your average American is not really there, but over time, it's affected America. You know? And so I, think, I do think we're, I think we're at a tipping point. I mean, I really think we're, we're very close to the edge. So, for me, there's hope, but I say this with a level of desperation as well. I think we must take this seriously. This is not something that, it cannot go on. Uh, so there you have it. Well, folks, thank you so much for coming. Um, I, uh, I appreciate it very much. So many of you come from out of town.